This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at NorthChaseFamilyDentistry.com. And by Tidewater Heating and Air Conditioning, servicing all major brands with highly trained technicians who are the best the industry has to offer. Serving Wilmington and surrounding communities for more than 40 years. Learn more at TidewaterAC.com. A chemical disaster that rained death on a small Pennsylvania town and a tragic chapter in the life of an infamous wrestling personality that shaped the man he would become in the ring. At first blush, these two stories, separated by decades and a few hundred miles, might not seem like they have much in common. But that isn't true. Both would make international headlines and have impacts that reverberated for years to come. Both would claim lives and force those left behind to pick up the pieces. But perhaps most surprisingly, both of these stories have deep ties to the Cape Fear region. One tells the story of local residents coming to the aid of a town under siege from a mysterious smog, while the other tells of an aspiring superstar's life nearly cut short by a deadly plane crash right in the heart of Wilmington. They are incredible stories of brushes with tragedy and the endurance of the human spirit. And they represent two of this region's most often forgotten tales of the 20th century. This is Cape Fear Unearthed the podcast exploring the persisting legends, historical oddities, and mysterious figures of southeastern North Carolina. I'm your host, Hunter Ingram, and I'm a reporter for the Star News here in Wilmington. This week, it's a two-for-one episode as we open our local history book to dive into volume two of our Cape Fear classics. If you remember from last season, The Cape Fear classics are the stories that, while as equally compelling and intriguing as the other stories we tell each week, these are the ones that don't need a full episode to flesh out. Think of them as bite-sized local history. In Volume 1, we told the stories of the old dram tree that welcomed sailors into the safe harbor of Wilmington for centuries. The frightening and booming occurrence known as the Seneca Guns and the origin of the community affectionately known as Monkey Junction. This week, we're dipping back into the classics to tell two more stories. And let me be the first to say that these stories could not be any more wildly different. First, we'll embark on a trip back to 1948 for the tale of why 40 residents from Denora, Pennsylvania took refuge in Wrightsville Beach after a deadly smog overcame their town. And then, we'll jump forward nearly three decades to look at the strange tale of the plane crash that almost killed the wrestler Ric Flair, and ultimately helped him form the Nature Boy persona that would make him a superstar. As always, I'll share with you our stories as they have been passed down through history 
and told through legend. But this week, it's just going to be us. No guests, just two fascinating stories. So strap in for this new episode as we unveil the next two chapters in the Cape Fear Classics. Chapter 4. The Smog Rolls In In the spring of 1948, Wilmington was riding high. Earlier that spring, the city had launched its first ever Azalea Festival, a weekend of bells and blooms that was founded to showcase all the springtime amenities the region has to offer. Beautiful gardens, glistening beaches, spirited residents, and perhaps more than anything, that signature Southern hospitality. The latter trait would get even more exposure that November when the region sprung into action on word of a strange occurrence developing above the Mason-Dixon line. On October 26, 1948, a thick yellowish smog started to develop over Denora, Pennsylvania a small mill town of about 14,000 people located 30 miles south of Pittsburgh. Within 24 hours, the smoke and fog began to take the form of something straight out of a horror movie. Just a day after the smog rolled into town, people started coughing. Breathing became a struggle for hundreds and then thousands of residents. Those with asthma were particularly susceptible to the irritant, but even the healthy weren't immune. Within just four days by Halloween, 20 residents were dead. An estimated 6,000 people are said to have developed respiratory problems to some degree after the event. And it's said that years were likely shaved off the lives of some of those unsuspecting victims. The only thing more troubling than the swift impacts of the smog was the mystery of where it had come from. At the time, scientists and officials were baffled. Again, this was all starting to sound like the plot of a movie that didn't end well for the residents of the town at its center. Eventually, the cause was traced to U.S. Stills' Denora Zinc Works, and the American Steel and Wire Plant, which, troubling as it sounds, were already known to release hydrogen fluoride and sulfur dioxide emissions into the air around Denora. The smog had been seen before, but it always dissipated within hours. Not this time. This time, it would hang over the town for five days. The only reprieve from the increasingly claustrophobic and oppressive smog was a rainstorm that rolled in on Halloween, dousing the town in a much-needed cleanse. But by then, the damage had been done. We're not going to get too deep into the science of it all, but it's reported that the smog was actually the result of a perfect storm of influences. In short, An inverse in the temperature trapped the emissions in a colder layer of stagnant air, 
close to the ground and then mixed them with a fog that created a toxic blanket over the town. News of the terrifying incident was circulated in papers all over the country, including the Wilmington Morning Star. On the front page of the November 2nd edition of the Morning Star, a wire story reported the 19 deaths that had occurred so far and the now looming threat of a possible epidemic of pneumonia. In it, a Denora doctor is cited saying, quote, It's plain murder. These people were murdered. End quote. In Wilmington, Elsie McGuinn and Billy Broadfoot took notice of the alarming situation. Within a matter of days, Broadfoot, the president of the Wilmington Junior Chamber of Commerce, and his fellow JCs were putting together a plan to lend a hand to Denora and invite a group of its most affected residents to come stay at Wrightsville Beach for a week of sunshine and fresh air. All expenses paid. To orient you in time, a notice about the JC's plan ran on the front page of the Morning Star on November 3rd, right under news of President Harry S. Truman's victory over Thomas Dewey in the presidential election the day before. The JCs planned to accommodate up to 50 residents and made arrangements with the Denora Health Department to identify those most in need of a respite from the toxic town still cleaning itself off. Initially, the Denorians, as they would come to be called, were supposed to fly into Wilmington on November 9th. But a series of hurdles left to be cleared would push that due date back. Generous offers from local businesses, restaurants, and residents began to pour in ahead of their arrival. Capital Airlines offered to fly up to 50 Denorians to Norfolk, Virginia, at which point National Airlines offered to complete the journey to Wilmington, all free of charge. Unfortunately for that plan, regulations from the Civil Aeronautics Board forbid the granting of free air travel. Wilmington Mayor E.L. White was miffed by the rejection of such a good deed, so he sent a letter up the ladder to get the regulation overridden. And I do mean far up the ladder. On November 10th, he telegraphed President Truman directly to make his case that the mission was dire and the ruling was preposterous. He concluded the telegraph by saying, quote, Wilmingtonians are indignant that they are refused opportunity to follow through with their emergency mercy mission. We respectfully appeal to you for assistance on this matter. End quote. In reality, the solution lied in simply applying for an exemption to the rule and privately chartering a plane, for which the town would have to shoulder the $1,000 bill. On November 16th, Broadfoot and the JCs finalized their plan to fly Denorians to Wrightsville Beach in just two days' time. At the last minute, what had initially been 21 guests to accept the offer swelled to 40, thanks to continued community support on both ends of the mission. Although Capital Airlines would have to charter a larger plane to get them all there, 
the mission was finally ready to take off. The Denorians departed Pennsylvania at 12.45 p.m. on November 18th and touched down in Wilmington just after 3 p.m. to a rousing welcome party, complete with cameras, hundreds of people, a slew of officials, and of course, a high school marching band. As soon as they filed off onto the runway, the Denorians, some of whom had been handed flowers, stopped to take a picture in front of the plane, which had been emblazoned with the slogan, Goodwill, Mington Mission. The smiling picture would become the signature image of the busy week of photo ops and events that would follow. The group of Denorians skewed largely older, not unsurprisingly, since older folks were more susceptible to respiratory problems. Some were still experiencing the dastardly effects of the smog exposure, even as they boarded the plane bound for Wilmington. To ensure their health was constantly monitored, ambulances were on hand for the entire trip, and oxygen was at the ready for anyone who felt faint. 74-year-old Lydia Little, who was the oldest member of the group, said that she escaped Denora to, quote, get the poison out of our system, end quote. Upon arrival, the youngest member of the group, 26-year-old Kay Weir, just seemed to be happy and a little overwhelmed to be there. Quote, we never expected any welcome this big. I'm thrilled aplenty, she told the Wilmington Morning Star. The arrival was recorded by local radio station WGNI for use on coast-to-coast stations. It was also rumored that it might even be broadcast on NBC, but it's not clear if it ever made it to air. From there, the Denorians were treated to quite possibly the most quintessential seven-day tour of Wilmington ever given featuring an itinerary that would rarely provide the rest and relaxation that they had come to town for. For seven straight days, the Denorians were almost constantly on the move. A few days in, one of the men in the group was actually hospitalized, not because he was sick, but because he had walked too much. It all began when they were loaded into a dozen new cars, donated by local dealers to be the official motorcade of the week. Donated by local dealers to be the official motorcade of the week. Then they headed off, with a motorcycle escort no less, to dine at George Sappho's restaurant, on the way stopping to enjoy a five-block parade thrown in their honor. The next day, they would tour Orton Plantation, the majestic home built in 1725 near Brunswick Town, the region's first permanent settlement. They had dinner at the Trade Winds restaurant in Wrightsville Beach and were treated to a movie at the Carolina Theater. On one of the first days, the younger members of the group, likely including Kay Weir, were the featured guest at a dance hosted at the Cape Fear Artillery. The Denorians would be boarded in apartments and homes in Wrightsville Beach around Lumina Pavilion, likely in an effort to show off the coast and let the breeze off the water clear out 
their exhausted lungs. One morning, a handful of the guests ventured out for a deep-sea fishing expedition on board the Sea Boots, the yacht owned by Wrightsville Beach Mayor Rayford Trask. It wouldn't be the first time they were swept away on the region's finest boats, having also been entertained with tours of the Intracoastal Waterway and Banks Channel. The town's churches opened up their sanctuaries and temples for the Protestant, Catholic, and Jewish members of the group. Even on days reserved for rest and relaxation, there were boat tours and even an oyster roast. Broadfoot even hosted a bus tour of Wilmington's most historic sites. Although they were treated like gods during their trip, at times, it almost seemed as though they were a bit of a touring showcase as well. On Sunday night, any residents who felt compelled to visit the Denorians were allowed to do so at the very apartments where they were being housed. As the week wound down, they were also given a private tour of Airlie Gardens as the personal guests of the Corbett family which owned the palatial gardens at the time. The group was also invited to separate ice cream soda and bingo parties at the beach that night. The entire sojourn was also catered by local residents, who donated meats and vegetables to the cause. Perhaps the only request the group could get in edgewise was a desire to try fried chicken before they left which their hosts were happy to crowdsource and serve up. The region was following the news of the Denorians so closely that a front-page headline in the Morning Star simply read, Denora visitors will eat chicken. It all culminated in a massive dance on the eve of Thanksgiving that featured two bands, two drum and bugle corps, a chorus of high school bands, and a half-hour minstrel show. When the Denorians entered the party that night, hundreds of people stood up and applauded them, as if they were rock stars. Unfortunately, the next morning at 10 a.m., they waved goodbye to the crowd of 500 that gathered at the airport and boarded a plane back to Denora. Luckily, they got on the plane with restored health and vitality, although probably a bit exhausted. The nurse that had traveled with them said they were looking and feeling better, and some even wanted to stay. Stanley Wozni was reported saying, quote, If I didn't have a wife and three kids in Denora, I'd stay down here. I'd even live in one of the vacant beach houses just to be here. End quote. It's said that in the coming years, a few members of the group would even move to Wrightsville Beach, though I couldn't find any specific names. Although the Denora smog incident had turned into a much-needed vacation for those lucky few, it had some very grim and real-world consequences for years after the smog disappeared. A decade later, cancer and cardiovascular mortality rates in Denora were still higher than other nearby communities. When the Denora Smog Museum opened in 2008, 
on the 60th anniversary of the event. The New York Times dubbed it one of the worst air pollution disasters in the country's history. If one positive can be found among the aftermath, it's that the smog disaster of Genora is often named as an inciting factor in the push for better public health awareness and even the start of the fight for clean air regulations. Just over a year after the smog arrived, President Truman would convene the first National Air Pollution Conference in 1950. And although it would take more than a decade, the Clean Air Act would finally be passed in 1963. The consequences of the smog would reverberate in Genora for years to come and have never been forgotten. But neither has Wilmington's generosity in their moment of need. When it could have easily turned a blind eye to the random town more than 500 miles away. But instead, we offered them shelter and some of that crisp North Carolina fresh air. Chapter 5 Wrestling with Tragedy. In the 1980s, Ric Flair was more than just a wrestler. He was excess and attitude incarnate. The cocky superstar known as the Nature Boy stood out for his blonde locks that only accentuated his impossibly tanned complexion and his loud collection of bedazzled and feathered robes that made it so you never missed him. He had a habit of throwing his wealth in the faces of his enemies and screaming his signature woo in just about every interview he ever gave. He was the 1% enemy that people couldn't bring themselves to loathe, despite him welcoming them to. He was an entertainer, a personality, and a charismatic showman through and through. But it was all an act. At the time, wrestling fans weren't yet ready to accept the fact that the rivalries and matches that electrified the National Wrestling Alliance and World Wrestling Federation rings every week were actually choreographed for maximum narrative payoff. It's a storytelling technique known as KFAB. Wrestlers would be assigned storylines and enemies to face off with, establishing what appeared to be grudge matches that would span months and multiple face-offs. Few people have ever been as good at selling the show of wrestling as Ric Flair, a multiple world championship title holder who is considered by many to be the greatest wrestler to ever step in the ring. But before he earned the glory, won the titles, and perfected the Nature Boy persona, Ric Flair almost lost it all in an instant. And it happened within just a few miles of the new Hanover Airport, now known as the Wilmington International Airport. In the fall of 1975, 
Flair hadn't yet taken on the Nature Boy character, which previously belonged to wrestler Buddy Rogers. He, too, had the white, blonde hair and flamboyant style that would become the signature look of Ric Flair, but he chose to wear a cape instead of a rhinestone robe. The year prior, Flair had officially joined Jim Crockett and the National Wrestling Alliance's Mid-Atlantic region, but it wasn't until February 1975 that he was given his first win against Paul Jones. It finally looked as though his star was on the rise, until it all took a turn. Flair and fellow wrestlers Johnny Valentine, Bob Brugers, and Tim Woods, a.k.a. Mr. Wrestling, as well as announcer David Crockett, finished up a match on October 3, 1975, in Charlotte. The next morning, they prepared to board a plane bound for Wilmington where 4,000 fans were waiting to see them do it all over again in a match inside Legion Stadium. The small charter plane in front of them, a twin-engined Cessna 310, was not ideal for hauling four muscle-bound wrestlers, and squeezing everyone in would prove to be a tight fit. Joseph Farkas, a 28-year-old Vietnam veteran, was to pilot the quick 45-minute flight. But first, he had a dilemma on his hands. Flair would later say that the four wrestlers all weighed between 200 and 250 pounds each, easily outweighing the plane's weight capacity. To offset the extra weight, Farkas unloaded half of the plane's fuel, likely thinking that he wouldn't need it for the short flight time. Unfortunately, he didn't redistribute the weight of his passengers to compensate, making the flight lopsided as soon as it took off. In interviews done through the years, Flair said the men spent the majority of the flight lobbing jokes at each other and telling stories. But as they made their final approach to Wilmington, the left engine cut out. With the runway almost in sight, Farkas simply switched over to the reserve fuel to carry them in safely. Except, there was no reserve fuel. He had left it behind in Charlotte. He could have stopped to refuel in Raleigh, but likely believed that he was fine to keep going. Soon, the right engine sputtered, and then stopped cold. Giving the plane nothing but dead air, to take a nosedive in. As the plane descended closer and closer to the ground, it started to clip the tops of the trees, which provided some resistance, but not nearly enough to slow it down. Within just a few hundred feet of the runway, the plane violently crashed into the ground. In the wreckage, the arm of the speedometer on the cockpit's control panel would be found frozen at 230 miles per hour, the speed at which they collided with the ground. The seats were ripped from their bolts on impact, piling everyone on top of each other. Valentine, being the bigger man in the group, had taken the front seat beside Farkas. As the passengers prepared for impact, 
He attempted to brace himself on the cockpit's dashboard, but instead his arms went through it all the way up to his armpits when the cascade of seats shot forward, pinning him up front. The collision broke Valentine's back and shot bone shards into his spinal cord, paralyzing him for the rest of his life. Although Flair was wearing a seatbelt, it was actually what contributed to his injuries. When the plane hit, he was thrust forward, breaking his back in three places. Brugger's also broke his back and would end up having a steel rod put in. He would retire from wrestling after the crash. Mr. Wrestling and Crockett were luckier and came away with less severe injuries. All of the men were removed from the plane and taken to New Hanover County Regional Medical Center to be treated. But as they were being admitted, they realized that they faced a big problem. Under no circumstances could Woods be seen traveling with Flair or Brugger's. They were the heels, or the villains, to his beloved Mr. Wrestling persona, who was the face, or the hero, in the ring. Being seen together, let alone being friendly, would ruin the story being played out for the fans. So when he was admitted to the hospital, Woods gave his birth name, George Wooden, in an attempt to protect all of their images. The deception was plausible, seeing as how Mr. Wrestling wore a mask in the ring. Despite immense pain, Woods would reluctantly start wrestling again just a few weeks after the crash in an attempt to keep up appearances and deflect any rumors circulating that he was on the plane with Flair and Brugger's. Although broken backs and bruises abound for the wrestling team, Farkas was in much more dire straits. He had fallen into a coma after the plane crashed, and he never regained consciousness. He died in early 1976. For Flair, recovering from the crash would be his biggest test yet. On a podcast hosted by fellow wrestler Stone Cold Steve Austin, Flair talked about the crash and said doctors told him that he would never wrestle again. Second opinions even told him that at the very least, he wouldn't know if it was possible until he tried. With a broken back, performing the agile falls, throws, and lifts required of wrestlers must have been painful just to think about. The wrestling ring itself is made of an elevated steel beam and wood plank stage that is then covered by foam padding and a canvas mat. In other words, wrestlers can prepare their bodies and their minds to take hits on that stage, but it's still going to hurt, especially with a broken back. After the crash, Flair went from 255 pounds to 180, a shadow of the man he was before he boarded the plane. But he was determined to make it back in the ring, so he trained and committed to rigorous physical therapy. And eventually, he took the therapy to the mat. 
in multiple interviews, he spoke of how he wrestled for an hour every night for five straight nights until he could work up the strength and the courage to take a backdrop again. Within eight months of the crash, he was back in the ring, but he never fought the same way again. Specifically, he never fell the same way again, favoring falls that allowed him to land on his side instead of fully on his back, an instinctive precaution he developed to minimize the pain. In the uncertain few months when the future of his career hung in the balance, Flair also discovered something that would help him power through. Speaking about the incident in a 2017 ESPN 30 for 30 documentary about his life, Flair said, quote, It wasn't until I crashed in the airplane that I found my character. End quote. That character lie in beloved wrestler Buddy Rogers, the nature boy. Flair recalled suffering through physical therapy and just wanting more than anything to be back in the ring and be the blonde, toned, tanned god that Rogers was. To get him to the other side, he fixated on that image and would soon adopt the character to his own personality although he would take it to a whole new level. Although Farkas unloading the fuel in Charlotte had directly led to the crash, Flair said he never held a grudge, despite having plenty of experience playing one up in the ring. Quote, I didn't lose anything but time, he said. And for some reason, it has enhanced my legend. I don't know why. I'm just lucky. End quote. To many, he had risen from a death sentence in the industry to become a superstar. The notoriety of the crash fed his larger-than-life persona, probably more than just being another wrestler could have ever done for him. Although Flair's career rose from the rubble of the crash, the fame that he would gain in the coming two decades would prove to be intoxicating. Although he was initially a regional wrestling personality, his energy and enthusiasm could not be contained. He became a national sensation, a household name, and with it came all the perks and pitfalls of stardom. He was the nature boy, but he would fall prey to the trappings of the title. He was the nature boy, but he would fall prey to the trappings of the title. Quote, it was something I was really good at. And once I realized just how good I was at it, then it became a disease. He said in the 30 for 30 documentary. What happened in Wilmington could have been the end of Ric Flair, but he triumphed over the misfortune and rose even higher than he had before. The kind of magnificent resurrection story indeed built for the King of the Ring. That's it for this episode of Cape Fear Unearthed. 
and Volume 2 of the Cape Fear Classics. Thank you so much for joining me. We'll be back next Thursday with a new tale from the local history book that takes us out to Bald Head Island. Or you can email me directly at capefearunearthed at gmail.com. Also, please make sure that you're a member of our Facebook group where listeners can ask questions about our episodes and share their own memories of the region's history. In that group, I post extra content for each episode. And this week, I'm going to be sharing photos of the Denorians' arrival in Wilmington and images of the Star News' coverage of the Ric Flair plane crash. You can find that group by searching Cape Fear Unearthed on Facebook. And don't forget to sign up for the Cape Fear Unearthed newsletter that goes out every Thursday. In it, I include links to the new episode and any supplemental pictures or videos that I uncover in my research, all delivered right to your inbox. Sign up for that newsletter at starnewsonline.com newsletters. As always, you can get a list of all the books, articles, and resources used in researching this podcast in the show notes of each episode. Cape Fear on Earth was written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. You can find more of my work at starnewsonline.com. Or you can follow me on Twitter at Hunter underscore Wesley. Additional editing is done by Adam Fish. This podcast is made possible by listeners and readers like you. Support local journalism and Cape Fear Unearthed by subscribing to the Star News today at starnewsonline.com slash subscribe. And while you're subscribing to things, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get the show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a review, which will help more people find Cape Fear Unearthed. Until next week, Get out and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. What you learn might just surprise you.